repeat again. Um, we started this reading of 1 Corinthians by considering who the Corinthians were. And we got some names of some people in the community. We began to describe them a little bit. And uh, in the process of that, we got a sense that from Paul's perspective, based on the reports that he's gotten, based on the letter that he has received, and most importantly, based on his relationship with the Corinthians themselves, that he is aware of some divisions in the community. Alright? Now, we've explored a little bit about what may have caused those divisions, but before I get to re recapitulation of that, I want you to listen to this sentence early on in 1 Corinthians. Because in it, I think there's a, there's a real hint at the way Paul understands the differences. Here it is. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26, if you want to follow along in the Bible. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Now unpack that sentence for me. You need to hear it again? Yeah. All right. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Would somebody explain that to me? The logic of the sentence and then the content of the sentence. I just have a question. Sure. Was, was wise in this case a technical term and referred to a certain people, certain, like, did it mean the philosophers or was it the general term? Yeah, it? I think in this particular case, he's talking about an educated elite. The people who were both intelligent and educated. You can be intelligent and not be educated, right? Mm -hmm. In this case, it would be an intelligent, educated group. And then it plays with the word afterwards. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would say that Christianity at this time appealed to the people who were less successful. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, he's saying, no, you aren't, you aren't at the top of the heap, but you had a call to this okay. religion. Good. So that most of the people in the early Christian community would not have been wise, would not have been powerful, right. and not have been well-born. Right. Anybody draw any... That's a perfectly appropriate conclusion to draw from this sentence. Is there another conclusion to draw from this sentence? It reminds me of this comment that Spike Lee, the movie maker, made. He said that one of the great lessons in his life was that you can learn a lot from people who are dumber than you. Well, you think they're dumber. Yeah, you may think they're but dumber. It was, yes. You know, he's a yeah, yeah, yeah. snappy guy, but yep. he, that 
potentially the most filled with spirit. Yes, yes. Who's the they in that sentence? The ones you just the ones who are not wise, not powerful, and not well-born. Potentially, right? Or really? What did you What did you think? Because the way you raised it, I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, I was trying to... Um, the ones who potentially are, are, are closest to Christ, um, the ones who are not... Um, do not aspire to what they are do not merit aspiring to they they are the ones who are most filled with well, who are not aspiring to that elevated not aspiring status. to to be powerful yeah. or to uh, but who are the, the truest yeah okay believers. yeah Good. But he's also saying some of you, some of you all. Gold star for Sarah. Yeah, not many of you are, which means some of you are. <laughs> all right? But he goes on then to say that um, the tables are going to be turned. He does. Yeah. He does. Now, then the question becomes, and this is something that I want to play with a little bit today, and next week, if you want to meet next week, um, is what's the relationship in the chapters we read for today, 12 through 14, what's the, what's the apocalyptic element in this? The, the, when the tables are turned as part of that apocalyptic worldview, right? When everything will be undone and everything be redone, all right? And in some of those apocalyptic images, it's a return to Eden. The, the last chapter of, of, um, of Revelation, um, <coughs> which is the last book of the Bible, of course, is the great apocalyptic view. And the apocalyptic view is of an urban Eden. Jerusalem on earth will have a river running through it with the tree of life on either side, exactly like the Garden of Eden. So you have a, an urban view of heaven, but it's got a big park in the middle of it. <laughs> I don't know whether it's New York or not. Central Park. Ezekiel has the image of the river yeah, coming out from underneath the Holy of Holies in the temple. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Ezekiel in the program. So we're going to, we're going to look at that notion of the inversion, um, but it's going to be more in chapter 16, uh, 15, and then 12. Mm -hmm. Eric, you had another one? Yeah, about wisdom. Yeah. Uh, in the section, in the verse you read, back to it, many of, not many of you were wise by human standards. Yeah. And yeah. we talked, I believe, two weeks ago, yeah. maybe a few weeks ago. About in chapter two, where he talks about different sorts of wisdom. Exactly. Exactly. So, and this is in chapter one. He's going to go into that. Yeah. He's setting up that yeah. argument in this. That the wisdom of God is not necessarily the wisdom of it's not human standards. Exactly. 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 And all the more reason for Sarah's point to be important. Not many of you were wise according to human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were well born. 
but some of you were. Now, I have been arguing throughout this, once we got into the text, that I am of the opinion that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, his letter is primarily addressed to the ones who are wise according to the world, powerful, and well-born. Because they are the ones who are looking down on the ones who are not. This, in rereading some things this week, it occurred to me this would be a way to drive that point home for you because I think it's fundamental for understanding 1 Corinthians that he is very much concerned throughout this letter with the way the group that are the group that is wise, powerful, and well born and the way they're looking down on the ones they're not. But the would have been read for the whole church. It would have been read in the whole church. So one of the and by the way, one of the questions I raised at this point, and, and I would I'm going to do some more work on this, is if Paul had written to the ones who were not wise and not well born right. and not powerful, what he would have said to them. So what I'm wondering yep. is <coughs> say everything he's saying is for them to rethink the values, the values that they have held. <coughs> it also calls for the poor to rethink the values they have held because they've accepted those values. So that maybe there's more striving after being powerful and wealthy and worldly wise amongst some of the people. Well, even if there isn't striving, there's accepting that this is my role, this, yeah. you know, how do I rise above my place? I know my place. And maybe he's saying, you don't know your place. Mm -hmm. To everybody, not just to the rich. But he never explicitly argues that. I think it would be interesting to assume. Well, but then think. Okay. Let's jump into that then. Talk about how it works in love for those do I want to go there yet? My <laughs> <laughs> only concern about that is I want to make sure we see a couple of things before we get into 13. Yeah, Barb. No, I... Sorry, I love you. I'm just waving my pen. Just waving my pen. What I'm working on here is that if Paul, in fact, is writing primarily to those who have worldly power and are well-born, which means they're amongst the elite, and the people who are educated as well as being intelligent, if that's the way he addresses most of the letter, where do we fit into that? If that is, we would say, in this particular instance, he's addressing privileged. People with elite status. How will we read some of these things? Now, let's take again some of the things that we've seen in this. In the first part, he talks about wisdom, as Eric points out. Those, that's the first thing that we looked at, that Paul is going to play with the word wisdom and he's going to say there's a worldly wisdom 
worldly wisdom and a godly wisdom. And the two are exactly opposite. And that to understand godly wisdom, you have to be a fool with regard to worldly wisdom. Right? The little word is a moron. As in those little <laughs> moron jokes, some of us grew up, hey, Peter. Um, those little moron jokes that probably some of you grew up with. Um, so that's one of the things to, to bear in mind in terms of, of that aspect of wisdom. But then we looked at um, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And that there were some people who, because they did not eat meat regularly, associated any meat with meat that had been sacrificed to a god and therefore perhaps was tainted for anyone who ate it. So that by eating of it, they were not unknowingly, because they were suspicious of this, but they were fearful that they would be taking part in a ritual which was a pagan ritual. An ethne, hard word to translate, but something like pagan, right? An idolatrous religion. And that's, uh, to use the word idolatrous would be to, would to point out that Paul was being very Jewish when he said that about sacrificing to an idol or to a, a statue or image of some sort of a god. That is a Jewish point of view from the time of the Babylonian exile. And Paul was. It was just in his DNA to talk that way. So um, we've got this notion then that there were some people who were not wise enough to know or to have appropriated that those gods don't really exist and therefore it doesn't really matter, right? Whether or not you eat the meat. And remember, where Paul argues that in chapters 8 through 11, he says... You're right that those idols are not real gods, and therefore the meat is not sacrificed to an idol because the idols don't exist. And you're perfectly free to eat the meat. Right? Everybody with me that far? Holly, you're... No, I'm laughing because it's, it's, it just seems to be a typical Pauline argument. Yeah, it is a Pauline argument. It is a, a typical <laughs> logical step of the way he will take a point and work from here to here. Right? But what is the other thing he noticed he does with that? You're free to do it. But. What did he argue then? He says, but. But, but what? He says, but when you do that, then uh, you might be offending or uh, dim diminishing or dismissing what other people have yeah. feel. Yeah. Yeah. I would add one other word to that. You may be tripping them up. You yeah. may be setting an example that they would follow and they're going to have a guilty conscience about it and therefore it will hurt them, harm them, do something to them inside. Therefore, you're free to do it. But if it's going to hurt somebody, you shouldn't do it. All right? Okay, everybody with you. That's what we saw in chapters 8, 9, uh, 11 through 11 and 1. Right? And what I gave you today, there's another run. And what I find interesting about chapters um, 12, 13, 
12 through 14. I'm jumping over chapter 11. It would be nice to do that. That's the one where on the one hand, we've got a lot of stuff about women and praying and men and praying. And we've got visions in the community when they come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is clearly about the ones who have a lot to eat and the ones who don't have a lot to eat. So there's another economic status issue with regard to what Paul regards as the fundamental act of worship, which is the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. So we can come back maybe one day and look at that in more detail if we do a study of communion or something. Um, but I wanted to do 12 to 14 precisely because it's got that passage on love and because in these three chapters, Paul seems to step back and make some more general principles as opposed to the specific argument. Eric? There were two passages in 12 I found particularly challenging, I'll say, I guess. On the sheet or not on the sheet? Uh, I'm looking at the text. I do. Well, I left some of the really hard ones out. What have you got? Two things. The first is the discussion of the variety of spiritual gifts. Okay. Which runs from where he ate through 11. Yep. Mm-hmm. Talks about yep. the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, etc., etc. <laughs> Is it more likely that certain of the Corinthians have these and other people don't? I don't know. But then the part that I found particularly challenging to think through was the discussion of the body, mm-hmm. 14 through 26. Right. The members of the body that, this is 22, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those members of the body we think less honorable will be clothed with greater honor, less respectable members are treated with greater respect, etc., etc. Is Paul sort of saying something about the class system in Corinth in this paragraph and relating it to these? Questions you've been raising. I think that's exactly what I think that's exactly what it, it and, and he does it in, in particularly in the latter part, in the, the, the body. Did everybody notice the passage on the body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a, yeah, it starts on page one. Um, indeed, the body does, does not consist of one member, mm-hmm. uh, but of many. Uh, I tried to lay it out this way so you could see how step by step he goes through this. Yeah, you... I didn't understand what, what members of the body are those that are weaker and treated with more respect. What is he referring to? Um, to treat with more respect is sort of um, a euphemism, I think, in this regard, or a kind of inverted, Marie. He's talking about the things we don't normally show when we wear clothes. Oh. That's what I gathered. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But in this regard, I think we have to put your observation on that and Eric's together. Because at one point, he's talking about the human body, but he's using the human body as a metaphor for talking about the church. Mm -hmm. So when he comes to that part about the weaker members, remember we last week talked about the weak and the strong? And Paul is going to invert those as well. But the weak are those people who don't have the knowledge, who don't have the understanding. And when they see people eating meat sacrificed to idols, they could be harmed by it. So that's where on this one, the weaker are those. 
but to God they are more precious. So that's where he flips his argument. Now, that needs to soak in, I think. Right? Did you just follow up? Did you follow what I just was trying to argue? Pardon me? It's very Franciscan. Very Franciscan. But could he also be saying that those that seem to get all this respect and uh, get all this honor might actually be the lesser parts of the body? I mean, you could look at that way, too. Exactly. All of you that have the fancy clothes and the the power and the glory, um, you're getting all this, you know, extra respect and attention, but you're nothing but the lowest. Exactly. The gospel reading is something I think it's exactly flipping. Mm-hmm. The, the camels, the eye of camels. Mm-hmm. I mean, the eye of the needle. How hard it is for the rich yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. to yeah. get into the kingdom yeah. of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle yeah. than for the rich. It's interesting because I've heard this passage so many times. I've never heard anybody talk about that he was speaking in those terms. Every time I've ever heard this passage or anybody talk about it, it was just about the gifts, and everybody has different yeah. gifts, and not that he was speaking directly at the wealthy or the higher class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's where, again, why it's so important to put all these sort of, you, that you watch the flow of the argument, because this is, where, this is where Paul is going to go, that it is so important for his treatment of what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. That is the fundamental metaphor. Now, he can talk about it being composed of saints and brothers and sisters, which is the family notion. Um, But he comes down finally to say, this is the body of Christ. And you all are parts of the body of Christ. How much does he consider it actually, you say, a metaphor? And how much real? Um, Metaphors aren't real, Sarah? I'm surprised a few of all people would think that. (laughs) Well, he says, just as the body. I mean, my sense of it is that he 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 believes that it's it's a real, it's it's a it's a symbol, uh, rather that that it partakes of the reality. It's not just um, an an analogy. We're like the body. That, that literally the body of Christ, we, the church, is. Um, and yes. that goes to this whole sort of self-emptying. So you would argue symbol is a more powerful term than metaphor? Yeah, I, I, yeah. Julia, yeah. would you buy that? As a poet, just, would you buy I was just thinking that. Or may, you're a poet too. I, I, the minute you said that, I thought of, and the word was made flesh. Yeah, yeah. That, um, that it is an incarnational yeah. religion. Right, right. And so there is a, you know, that leap. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think it is. I think a metaphor thing, I'm just thinking, is that is that what he meant? Mm-hmm. To me, a symbol is something that is abstracted from life, and incarnational to me is more a metaphor than it is participating in this is this, yeah. you know. Right, right. Um, but the symbol that has the reality in it, no? But it, to me, it's more abstracted from the incarnational part of it. It's more yeah, yeah. symbolic. You think of the symbol, what it represents. And with a metaphor is this is this. It's so relational. Yes, yes. Right, and therefore, right. to me, anyhow, more incarnate. Boy, I'm <laughs> yeah. I, I just, 
Precisely because it's such real language. And that's the whole point I wanted us to make sure we see chapter 12 before we see chapter 13. And then we see that in chapter 14 he comes back and he gets real again. The very fleshly element of it. The real people in it. So that 12 is, the love chapter is not abstract. It's right in the middle of one of the most poignant sections of this letter where he's talking about real people and what the community is and how the community can survive. Oh. Yeah, ma'am. So before I go on, I think what I wanted to say. Okay. It's a living body, and that body cannot live without any of its parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well? Yes, you can. You just get mutilated. Yeah. It's not the same mm-hmm. body. I'm saying that it, it cannot thrive without any of its parts. And that's, let's go back, um, well, no, let's stay with this, and I'll come back and do this, the gifts in a moment, because I want to work that in before we forget it, um, or lest we forget it. But here, it goes through each part, and one part can't say to another, you don't belong. And that comes back to Julia's observation then of the way that it is used as incarnate and the way it comes back that it all fits together. A body is composed of many parts. So a part is not the whole, the whole is not the part, but they are. And so that's, that's what goes on throughout this whole section that he drills home again and again and again. Every part is important. Even the ones that may seem not to be important because we cover them up because of modesty. But when you think about it, they're pretty important for the body. All right? So, you know, all of it is there. And we play these games about what modesty is and that you can't show certain things. And he's aware of that. He's painfully aware of it when you get into chapter 11. But... In this particular instance, the point he wants to make is you belong together. And there's no hierarchy. Well, there is no there's no essential hierarchy. But this is again, he's going to make that point by flipping the point of the people he's addressing. 
because this is where Eric's first observation about the gifts is important. Because for the people that he's writing, the best gift is to speak in tongues. Because it illustrates just how spiritual you are. Because you can speak the language of angels. And so if you can do that, you're above all these little... Mm, Julia, I almost said peons. That would have been an awful thing to say, wouldn't it? I started to say peons, but th that would have been a terrible thing to say, wouldn't it? Hoi poloi. Hoi poloi. Let's go for the Greeks. Yes. The people who could speak in tongues were looking down on the people who could not. And it illustrated then that they are the more spiritual people. So pneumaticos, which is the, the work here, the, the word here, the whole thing started with now concerning spiritual gifts. Alright? The people who are in speaking of tongues, because they have more spirit, because they're wise, because they're the elites, they're looking down on the people who can't. So what does Paul do? He puts them at the He box. flips it. He flips their argument completely. Saying at the same time, or a little bit later, hey guys. I speak in tongues too. In fact, I speak in tongues more than any of you. <laughs> All right? It becomes that same sort of thing he can do in other places. You boast of being a Jew? Hey, I can, be, I can boast that too. You're circumcised? Oh, I'm circumcised too. You study Torah? I study Torah too, and I do it more than any of you. <laughs> All right? So he, he will play that game. But in this particular instance, what he will go on to say repeatedly and, and in very specific terms, I can speak in tongues, but when you get together as the community and you speak in term, tongues and nobody can interpret what you're saying, the only person you're helping is yourself. And it's better to do it at home. So that people who come in and don't speak those tongues will not be intimidated, or if they're an outsider, uh, idiotes is the word, they're idiots, they're people who don't know, um, they come in and see it and think, oh wow, this group is, this is a bunch of crazies. So, because if you notice the very last phrase is, for God is a God not of disorder but of peace. <laughs> that's going to be where the whole thing's going to go, uh, at least at one level. So, speaking in tongues would be one of the dominant signs in this community that you're a spiritual person. And if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a spiritual person. And then you can, again, go back if you want to and look at that between the pneumatic and the fleshly in chapter 1 and 2, where he's flipping those as well, or... What would be considered speaking in tongues back then? What would be considered? Speaking in tongues back when? Uh, it's, it would be ecstatic speech. Something you could do when you're in a trance sort of thing. And you know, it, it, this, that is, this is not a peculiarly Christian phenomenon. Um, other religious traditions would do it, or non-religious traditions would do it. It's just something that, ecstatic, that you're you're showing that you are not in the earthly realm, mm -hmm. but you can speak, again, the tongues of angels would be um, 
if I speak the tongues of angels and not of men, so there's a sense in which it is glossolalia. Well, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time trying to explain it, but it, it is simply that kind of phenomenon that you go into something like a trance, which would say you're taking part in the other world. But the main point for us is speaking in tongues for this elite level of people are saying, we can do it and you can't. There then, Paul is saying that there are differences. They're not fundamental differences, but they're, this group is trying to make differences by the way they have special gifts, which be the equivalent of special knowledge, which would be the equivalent of having more and better food to eat than the other. All these ways in which some members of this community are putting on airs with yeah. regard to other people in the community. It is shot through in one group. This is the chief, these are the principal ways in which the community is divided. Yes. I think Nothing's changed. <laughs> I'm seriously. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to come back to that. And, and I'd like us to talk. Can we, where, how would we mm, parse either us at St. Stephen's or parse the country or whatever, however we want to divide it up? Is there, are there takeaways of this? But before we get to that, um, um, the other thing I, I did on this simply is laying it out this way that you could see some of the way Paul writes um, by having these columns of things, rather than simply having them run lines, you can see that this is very rhetorical, it's very studied, it shows that Paul is among the elites, so not only can he speak in tongues, he can speak and write at a rather sophisticated, I don't know what you'd call this poetic, but it's very rhetorically structured, right? And even the elites in Corinth recognize that Paul could write strong letters. That in 2 Corinthians, they will criticize him for, for writing strong letters, but when he hear, he doesn't speak very well. Um, and you, through this, you see how many of those lists there are just by flipping the page and seeing this way. Um, Summarize. Chapter 12. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. We are all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Verse 20. As it is, there are many members, yet one body. 24. But God has so arranged the body, given the greater honor to the inferior members, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. That becomes the fundamental conclusion he draws from the discussion about the members of the body. Going on, and I suspect Carol that John Dunn probably had some of this in mind in verse 26, 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together in it. Okay? So, now we come back to Paul's conclusion about gifts. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, the gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. So, Holly, yeah, is there hierarchy in the church? <laughs> If it's going to be flipped, it's best to be in the middle. <laughs> Especially if you're good at standing on your head. <laughs> I and then the concluding part of this, 29, this is, there, this is grammatical form in Greek that all of these questions are set up implying the answer is no. Right? It, you can do it in Latin as well. Um, are all apostles? Well, no, not all apostles. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? That should be on the next one. And the answer to each of those is no. Which again means that it is the whole community which requires each of these sorts of things. But Paul would want to say finally, it is there working together. So, yeah. so there's something in here, again, I put my finger on it. Yeah. It's about unity and diversity, or diversity and unity. I think you could make that argument either way. Mm-hmm. And something about collective responsibility. Everyone is in this together. We're all in this together. Yeah. He's to the point that, again, if you go back and look at his, his treatment of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, um, the way you are separating yourselves out based on what you eat and what you drink when you come together, that's dividing the body of Christ, and his conclusion is you're crucifying Christ all over again by denigrating a member of the body. Yeah. And I use the word diversity. I think they come from the same language. You said what? I used the word diversity. Diversity. Vision. Yep. Right. Um, and Paul would argue there is diversity, there's not division. Mm-hmm. He I allows agree. the I diversity, he does not that. allow the division. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a below these differences or beyond these differences there is not a there is each person, each member of the body has equal worth I think Paul would agree is that something one could conclude from this I think so he will well let let me come back because you're allowing me to make another point that I think is fundamental to understanding this. And this, I'll use this point as a transition to the love passage. Because I think Paul is writing to the elites, everything is going to be pressed in that direction. 
again, I would love for, to see what Paul would write to the others, to the people who are down on I understand Meg's point that it's going to be read to everybody, and they would probably talk about it. Now, I happen to have read some stuff in the second century about Corinth, and it did not work. His letters did not work in Corinth. They continued to have difficulties all the way through. But nonetheless, this is what Paul is trying to propose to be needed. But he's writing then to a very specific situation and very specific people in that situation. Do I think he would argue for equality? Yes, but he doesn't do it here explicitly. It's implied. And he also, remember when we looked last week, he will say, you're right to say you have a right to do this. You're right to say those idols don't exist. You're right that there's a wisdom here. But if you use your right in a way that harms somebody, that's not acceptable. Well, to your point about what we say to the other people, what would he say if there were people that were boasting, or there were people that want, just insisted on their own way or resemble, how do you respond to those people? That's what this is. Huh? I said that's what this is. No, how do, if this is how those people should be responding, that they shouldn't be that way. This is directed to the people who are that way. Yeah. So what about the people who have to deal with the ones? Or the people who are there. Yeah. Oh. The underlings. Yeah. 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 But we, I've wondered that too. And I wonder if there are another letter of Paul that is more addressed to that group? I mean, maybe looking at another letter, is there another one that might have been not as directed to to see, to see what he might Yeah, I think. There clearly in most of the letters there's something he's dealing with. I mean Galatians just, just shot through with with difficulties um, and, and tensions. Philippians and one Thessalonians would be where I would go for that. Philippians. Though I think because things were going well in Philippi. And it's a very praise, it's a very warm letter, it's a very endearing letter. He clearly feels good about the Philippians. Is this basically because this class, is this a classic kind of the class of society, or were all of them going to be in the same situation? Uh, Corinth, I don't think, was different in that regard than this. I think it, there were just some people, um, well, let me back up. I mean, what's the Corinth point? was more wealthy than any other city with the exception of Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, and Rome. It was a wealthy city. It was a... It was a port city. There's just a lot of wealth there, and there were clearly people that got caught up in this community. Whether or not it's because of Paul or whether it was Apollos, but people who had philosophical training and were clearly among the more educated elite. So I guess what I'm where I'm going is this the first time that anyone tried to bring these classes together? Mm. Mm. There were social, there were societies, societas is the technical term. Uh, where some of it was happening in other places. And it wasn't the only place where you had mixture. Epicureans, for example, were the philosophical school that were breaking down some of those social orders. There were women who were involved in the Epicurean school. And so 
there were places where it was breaking down. Um, but I think, at least in the Pauline communities, there was an attempt to sort of push that out, I think. I, I see him as saying to everybody in the congregation, what they have to do is love each other. Yes, this is addressed to, okay, some were being boastful, but if you're kind of at the bottom of the heap, and that person who's being boastful gets to you, he's saying you've got to learn to love. It's all, everybody in the group, whether or not you're at the bottom or at the top, has to love. You have to love each other warts and all, is what he's saying. And so I see that as what he's saying to the people who also are I wonder, I don't know if that's what he's saying. <laughs> well, to me, it's, he, he just says you can have everything, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. But well, what if you have nothing? Being love? stepped on is another thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he's saying you have to. Did you have to let them step on you? No, you have to love them, even though they step on you. Right. But I'm just wondering what his response would be to these lower class people. How to deal with this? If if experience yep. loving is one thing, but you have to have more than just love. That's like All right. Attitude, right? <laughs> Let, let's explore this. I, th I think it's a great question. I think it's a fundamental question in this, and it's a fundamental question for any applicability we might put to it. So before we try to resolve that, let's look at chapter 13 and see just what he does say about love. Because one of the things I think would, will be that's so important about looking at this is being as specific as we can in understanding what Paul is saying what love is. And maybe one of the things we will come to the conclusion is that love is not the way you feel about anything or anybody. But there may be some specific sorts of things that love requires if it's to be the kind of love he's talking about. Once we do that, then let's come back again and ask the question, what are the lower in this social order supposed to do? Are they supposed to just turn the other cheek? Oh, we're back to Jesus' yeah. Yeah, right. it's not just Which is another hard one, right? Okay? Is that fair, Beth? You okay sure. with that? I mean, that argument has been used to keep people it has. down and, yeah. and slave, enslaved and all kinds of things. So. It's not enough to just love someone. And oh, that's no, where no, we would need right. to ask that question, that hard question of Paul about slavery. It's come up in this group before. Mm -hmm. um, who was it who we pointed out in in? Um, Can you just say something else? Like John did. Like John or you look at I, I say the <laughs> black movement. The right yeah, you look at the black movement. <laughs> so These people could have. The Gandhi could so easily have hated the British. He didn't. He didn't. Thank he, he instead loved Sorry. his fellow man and was able to use that love to overpower. I do understand that, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm wondering what Paul would say about this kind of Gandhi was pretty nasty to his wife. <laughs> yeah. She also had it, and, but also <laughs> you go to you go to black leadership mm -hmm. in our country. We were so lucky because people like Martin Luther King did not turn around the country. They 
you know, dispossessed and disenfranchised, but they continue to love, and that's a very strong thing. It's the power. There are a lot of skills there, but yeah. and it was love that was fierce, yes. and yes. it was a verb, not a noun. You know, yeah. they were yeah. really they did love. But, yes. but the, it is the beloved community. So anyway, sorry, my little. No, no, no. That's that's good. And won't they Thank also you. feel vindicated because they must hear in Paul, "Aha, I know what you guys." You know, sometimes you can feel it's something doesn't have to be addressed to you, but you feel vindicated when you when someone that has power and empowered. Yeah, you feel seen. So maybe that is. Yeah, as long as you don't go to um, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. <laughs> because if you go there, you've got the slaves being obedient yeah. and all the yeah. other stuff. Yes, you have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so again, what was he saying to the other people? Yeah. 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 Well. You're going to write that one, right? I'm going to work on it. <laughs> um, the, con the conclusion of the whole thing about the gifts in chapter 11 um, uh, sorry chapter 12 is um, but strive for the greater gift and I will now show you a more excellent way that is the introduction to chapter 13 mm -hmm. so everything in chapter 12 has been working its way to this by talking about gifts and is by the way uh, when he talks about gifts here, notice there are primarily things you do. By the time you get to those later books that I mentioned, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, these become offices. So they become institutionalized. Paul talks about it more, at least when you look at the opening. Um, the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, faith, gifts, the working of miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, various kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. He emphasized what is done to build up the community. And then finally, at the bottom of page one, um, sorry, bottom of page three, uh, sorry. <laughs> didn't work quite the bottom of page two is what I was going for. But strive for the greater gifts and I will show you the more excellent way. Page three is the more excellent way. How many of you have ever heard this outside of a wedding? Outside Where have you heard it outside of a wedding? At the electing convention for the bishop. Okay, right, right. <laughs> you, you didn't hear it. Good. I did. But it is it is usually a wedding piece, but appropriately enough. But um, this is not about weddings. The opening the opening line, of course, is the one we've seen uh, that we've already talked some about. If I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels, that's the ecstatic speech that we were talking about, speaking in tongues. But do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Evil lady come back and just say, you're just talking gibberish, people can't understand it. So if somebody's not there to interpret, 
don't do it. You do it at home. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. Again, notice the structure of the sentences. All parallel development. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Okay? So there's laying out in that opening, very carefully structured way. I am a gong, chant clanging symbol, I am nothing, I gain nothing. But all those are good things. Right? Mm -hmm. Giving away all my possessions. I think that's what we were looking at in Sunday morning at the passages from Luke. And then in verse 4, we get to another one of these lists of what love is. Patient kind, not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Who would like to unpack that for me? Maybe God. Pardon? Maybe God. Maybe God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, Dee. Well, I'm just looking at it, um, thinking that uh, they have, if, if they um, have all these things, it has to flip itself. Um, in, in other words, they have there have to be the, the non-elite there in order for the elite to change. Um, uh, or the the yeah they have to see that um, I mean it's like a mechanism to bring about a transformation in the elite uh, to give them that opportunity to uh, to be kind or to uh, not be resentful it's going to take the other half in other words for one either side mm -hmm. to be able to become uh, a changed person, to become loving if they're not loving. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just kind of a way of looking at it. Yeah, and I think that's similar to what Carol was arguing, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yeah, Eric? I had a question which has to do with what the Corinthians had in mind when they heard the letter read or sat down and read it. The word Greek, agape, it's translated in most modern translations, love is charity in the King James Version. When the Corinthians heard Paul talking about this concept, what did they have in mind? Were they thinking about what Jesus said? Love, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, love your neighbor as yourself. Was it that kind of love? Was it a difference? It, it's just, what did the word agape mean to the people in Corinth who were, who were recipients of this letter? It was a much more rarely used word than um, phileo or um, eros, mm -hmm. which would have been much more common. Mm -hmm. um, but Jesus wouldn't have been speaking Greek. I would argue that Jesus probably knew enough Greek get around because Greek was a major language in 
Galilee at the time? So if he didn't know Greek, he I don't think he didn't know Greek. I mean, he but he would, I'm sure he would, I'm fairly confident he would have been bilingual. Um, but I would, I would think in this, they would have known the word, how much um, freight it carried. I don't know, Eric. There have been those arguments, of course, that agape is a purer kind of love than mm -hmm. any of the others. Um, maybe, but I'm not sure most people would have thought in, in such sharp categories mm -hmm. that suddenly the Christians come in and they talk about love in ways that nobody else mm -hmm. did. Um, it's certainly the case that one of the observations that, that were being made commonly in the second century was that one of the reasons that Christianity grew as much as it did, as rapidly as it did, um, is because they took care of one another, and that was interpreted as love. Mm -hmm. We see this particularly in the Johannine epistles, 1, 2, and 3 John. Mm -hmm. Loving one another becomes huge, and it becomes one of the ways that the Christians came to be seen as different because they took care of one another. Rodney Strong, who is a sociologist, um, I think he's still living, I'm sure he's retired, but at any rate, Rodney Strong came along and did a lot of his early sociological work looking at uh, new religious movements in the 60s. So he was looking at the Hare Krishnas and various other groups of that ilk who were forming communes and all this sort of stuff. And he took what he learned in studying those and he said, well, you know, these are kind of new religious movements in America. I wonder if early Christianity worked that way or was seen that way. So he took his sociological models of that, looked at them in this, and he said, you know, this would have worked particularly, and he draws statistics on this, that there were a couple of major um, plagues in the first couple of centuries. And in plagues, if people get very basic human care, like water, is much more likely to live. And the Christians then took care of one another by giving water and the basic food and just care. Well, with the rate of death in plagues, if the Christians were taking care of one another, their survival rates would be more than the common population, which means that there would be more people to marry in that group than outside the group. And so he says, you know, there's a way in which you can look at that and say, well, this talking about behold how these Christians love one another, which was a quotation from one of the first commentators about the Christian. Maybe it, maybe it worked in ways that allow for that growth. That's a long-winded, and I apologize, I get carried away. Um, that's, that's a way of saying, Eric, that um, there's something about the notion of loving, but it was a very specific kind of love. It was providing food, it was providing clothes, it was taking care of widows, it was taking care of orphans, so it had a very specific social impact. It had reality. It wasn't simply there sit around singing kumbaya. <laughs> Does this part at all address sort of the underclass that 
it could speak to them too. I mean, if you're annoyed with the people above you being so hoity-toy, you need to be patient with them. You need to be kind to them. Mm -hmm. And try not to be so envious of what they have. And I don't doubt it, Kitty. But again, I would say in this particular context, that's not primarily what Paul had in mind. Because he has seen this community divided deeply. And most of the divisions were being caused by the people above, not the people below. And so if you look at that, and, and, and I, I, I understand, and I'm telling you the way I read. Yeah. Right? When you look at that, um, love is patient, love is kind, it could work for both. But it would be particularly important for the people who are looking down, or not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. Does not insist on its own way. That, it seems to me, speaks most in this particular instance to those things. And I think that's who Paul was going after. Okay. And, and, you know, again, Larry, would yes. it be fair to say as a social principle that Paul is saying you judge a society about, or community or whatever, about how they treat their bottom 25%, let's say. That's the judgment he's saying. How are you treating the bottom? I think that would be a significant part. Again, in an ideal world, mm -hmm. I think Paul would argue that everybody's taking care of one another. Mm -hmm. But not as, as Clement of Alexandria would come along and say in the early part of the second century, in the 100s, when he said, because he, he, was argue, he was wrestling with that phrase of the, from the rich. He was arguing about the passage that we saw in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday, how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of God. So his, his, the title of his, uh, of his essay was, Who is the Rich Man Who Will Be Saved? So he took it head on. Okay. And Clement in Alexandria, very wealthy city, um, probably even wealthier than Rome at the time, he comes along and says, well, the rich should give things to the poor, sort of take care of the poor, and the poor pray for the rich. If you do that, everything will be good. <laughs> sure. I mean, anybody want to guess what status he was? <laughs> he wasn't really among familiar. the Lord. It does sound familiar, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Where did Paul get this? It's so, where did Paul get this? This is so extraordinary. And we're, we're sort of familiar with it, but each, it is. each thing right. is so, so extraordinary that He's, he's not really talking about the Corinthians here. He's talking about Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. Because it, it just seems to come from some whole other place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's something that he's seen in Jesus. And I mean, that just is an observation. But um, each time I read it, I think this comes from some other place than the chapter before. It also, one of the things that I thought about this week that I've never 
that you've noticed before. Mm -hmm. There's not any quotations from Scripture here. Usually Paul can't say two sentences without quoting mm -hmm. by the Jewish Scriptures. Mm -hmm. I don't see anything in here. I, there may be some wisdom sayings from Proverbs or something like that that show up because you do get a few things. Um, but it is pretty high flown language. And it's deeply insightful, it seems to me, in a lot of ways. It reminds me of the nothing shall separate us from the love of God, that passage where he just yeah. suddenly sailed. He does, he does. Yeah. Romans 8. Yeah. 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 But it's, sorry, yeah. Um, I wonder if at the end of the Or in one Corinthians fifteen. In where? One Corinthians fifteen. He um, which, which if you like, we'll talk about next week. That's precisely my point that mm -hmm. this sort of shows there, mm -hmm. but it remains very real. Yeah. Yes. He's writing it to real living people who are fussing with one another. It's trying to keep them focused on me. Where it leads. It might, I think ultimately that's always the case with Paul. But look at the stuff on the back page. On the other hand, those who prophesy, this is, um, those who prophesy speak to us. Oh, well, he, he goes back to the tongue stuff. For those who speak in tongue do not speak to other people but to God. Well, now Paul is all for people speaking to God. I, don't get me wrong, and this is where he said, I, I do it more than any of them. But nobody understands them since they are speaking mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So if you want to talk about what the community's about and even what worship's about, it's upbuilding, encouraging, and consoling. Those who speak in a tongue build up themselves. But those who prophesy build up the church. The end of uh, verse 12, the end of that section where he goes off and says, I speak in tongues more than any other. So with yourself, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, try to strive to excel in them for building up the church. Not for building up yourself but for building up the community. What should, the, what, uh, then he comes to bringing it all to a sort of homiletic <coughs> flight of fancy. What should be done then, my friends? You know, what's the bottom line? What's the takeaway here? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. 
If a, and then he goes on at the bottom where he gets real specific. If anyone speaks in the tongue, so he's not shutting it off, but if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let one interpret. <laughs> but if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and notice the other phrase because this is I think this is important too and let the others weigh what is said if a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby let the first person be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets for God is a God not of disorder but of peace so, th there's a sense in which this whole great pee of love and all this sort of stuff is about giving the Spirit. He comes back at the end and says, all right, guys, you really got to think about this. And you got to weigh what's being said. And you make discerning judgments about what was being said. He comes back to earth. He comes back to earth. But, but though, though in a way, it seems to me, Hogan, this is what I've been trying to communicate. And if I fail, I apologize. What I've been trying to say is that that wonderful poem, our flight of mystery, or, or whatever we want to call chapter 13, is right in the middle of this discussion about a community that is tearing each other apart. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 is, it is grounded, the, the discussion about love and patience and all this other, is grounded in the reality of the community. Now, what, where, where we didn't get today that I sort of hope to is, is a, a finding a way of talking about us. Is, is there an us, whether it's just the hybrid of us in this room, or is it St. Stephen's, or the Diocese of Vermont, whatever us we want to, how large or small we want to make this. But if, we're, if, we're, if we were to write a letter to the Church of St. Stephen's, the stewardship committees having people do. If we were to write that letter and say, here's what where the divisions are and whatever there might be. And to use Eric's phrase, which I like a lot, of how do we allow there to be diversity but not division? I mean, let's face it, we're different. Some of us come from the Midwest. That's a totally different world from where I came from, or a totally different world from New England. And they're fundamental things that in which in which we are different. How does how does that difference result in richness and assembly? And, yeah. um, we have a meeting here at six thirty. Oh, okay. So, um, so don't put the chairs away, okay. and maybe somebody can help me set up a couple tables. Okay, sure. Well, those of us who are staying can help. <laughs> I'm staying. I'm staying. Are we meeting next week? Or do you want to do one more, and we do 1 Corinthians 15, which sort of sums yes. it up? Yes. 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 I've already said we are. <laughs> I got the word that we 
Aurora and I spread it. You <laughs> won't be able to make it, but oh, yeah. You'll be out trick or treating. No, <laughs> trick or treating. Yeah. Are you going to the DR? Is it? No, no, no. Oh, not right sorry, now, I, no. you don't need to tell me what you're doing. I, no. I oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I need to win. But what I would like to do is look at 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. okay. Now, it's, it's going to be another one of those where he sort of goes off into great flights of what the end of the world is going to be. Um, uh, but there's some earthly things. Offering to do an extra. Well, we got to do four. So thank you for We'll add to your pain. Unfortunately, that's what I have. Yeah, I agreed to lead a discussion on the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. oh. On the New Yorker? On the whole thing? I know, just one article. 